0: Hello everybody, welcome to the Poolside Perspectives podcast. I am Kevin Woodhurst and with me is my good friend Mike Farley and we're so glad you found this podcast. Together we have been homeowner advocates in outdoor living and the pool industry for over 30 years. So we understand the challenges you face creating your backyard paradise. We know your curiosity is not enough to ensure your success. So on this podcast, we're gonna talk about the design process and practical steps to help you create that space. We'll have some fun mixed in with it some aha moments, and this is no fluff. No one has time for that, so we're going to get serious and get very particular about all of these topics. Whether you are a new homeowner with your first remodel or a seasoned homeowner competing your last dream home, we are here to help you end up with what you dreamed of. From pools to patios, pizza ovens to pergolas, porcelain to pumps, pool party to permits, ping pong tables to the processes, to your paradise. This is straight talk and action steps. Let's get started. All right, good afternoon, everybody. We've got a great show today. Mike and I are talking about building swimming pool projects and outdoor environments in small spaces today. So there's a lot of considerations for this, and Mike and I have done quite a few over the years. So, Mike, tell me about small spaces. Small special. Yes, I love doing small space pools. It
1: is, to me, people have asked me, they've asked me what is the most difficult project to design, and I said, it's a small space. Mm Mm-hmm. they're like, what do you mean? These big, huge projects, they're not? And I'm like, no, because every inch in a small backyard comes
0: into play. That's exactly what I was thinking. Every single inch matters. And
1: so the challenge is, what inches do I get to use? Mm -hmm. And people are like, what do you mean? And I'm like, every city. And that's probably the hardest thing is somebody sees something in one city and they're like, oh, I can do that. And then they go to where they're at and
0: they're not allowed to. And They're like, but wait, I saw it here. Here's a picture of it. And I'm like, I understand that. A similar problem we have with every job when people see different pools and projects that are at different cities that have different setbacks and different rules and limitations. We know somebody that did this or did that. So exactly the same thing in the small stuff for sure. The word
1: variance Mm -hmm. is something that I'm familiar with in small spaces a lot because I have to go to the city and get them to change their rules.
0: That sounds like a good word for the day. I hate that word. Nobody (laughs) likes that word. Again, every city interprets
1: things differently. And I'm dealing with a project right now. And some cities say you have to be five feet off the house to the body of water. Meet their code. To meet their code. Now, every city defines where the body of water is is different. Some, it's the structure that the water is in, which means sometimes that's a foot or 18 inches away from the water. And some of them go to the water itself.
0: So you're saying here in Texas that it could be the actual structure. So the thickness of the wall ends up being part of the dimensions we're working with. So you end up losing space. Correct. So the principle that lies with almost all these cities
1: is what they're concerned about is a cave-in. I'm going to dig a hole and it's going to cave in and the structure is going to be jeopardized and now the city's on the hook because we allowed you to do this. Mm -hmm. And there's a term that's called a one-to-one ratio that you work with. The angle of repose? That's the one, and that's a nice angle. But basically what they're worried about is if you dig a hole that's eight feet deep, they want you to be eight feet away, respectively from this house or structure that you're working with. But some cities, what they look at is that when you dig a hole, you dig the hole 18 inches bigger because in some cases the structure is 18 inches larger than the water. And so that's why they want that
0: setback to the edge of the structure because that's how big the hole is going to be. So question for you would be in that situation where you have a house sitting on a foundation, that foundation goes below the ground. Correct. So at what point are you using the angle of repose from the top of the foundation, which doesn't make oh. any sense, or the bottom? And how do you know how deep that foundation is? Well, again, it
1: depends on the city that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And sometimes
0: you'll have a foundation
1: plan that you can work with so you can know this. The other thing is some houses have piered structure that support the house. A lot of times engineers, if you bring a project to them and they have a peered structure and the footings aren't jeopardized, you can get the engineer to sign off on encroachment into that
0: space. Sure, because that house that's sitting on piers is likely not going to be moving anywhere or putting pressure down. And just to explain people to what the angle of repose is or the one-by-one, one-on-one, one-to-one ratio is if you were to draw an intersecting line straight out and you're five feet away and you go five feet down, that Angle right there is what we're talking about so that the pressure of the foundation is not putting pressure on a fresh hole that's dug in the ground because to Mike's point, it could cave in. So it's a safety issue. So like I've got a project
1: right now, the water's only six inches deep. And so the angle of repose is much closer to the house than five feet, which a lot of cities just draw it at five feet. We want you to be five feet away.
0: So in that case, it's a moot point. But, like a spa, if you did a hot tub or a spa, in ground spa, it's only going to be maybe three and a half feet deep, then you're only dealing with that.
1: If it's elevated 18 inches, then you're only dealing with two feet sure. of the ground. These are a lot of technical things, but sometimes you get a variance because the engineer will sign off on something. And then the city's like, well, the engineer signed off on it. They're taking liability now. Mm-hmm. And it's not us as a city. And so we're good with it and we'll give you that variance to allow you to do something different than our rules. Now, when you talk about proximity, the other thing that comes into play is a lot of cities require you to be a certain distance from glass. That's not tempered. Sure. Five feet. Okay. Five feet. And now if you have glass that goes all the way to the floor of the house, that glass is automatically tempered. That's required. And I think all windows are within, I think, 24 inches. The bottom of them are all tempered glass to begin with. So mm-hmm. if it's tempered glass, then you can get closer to it. It's right. just the non-tempered glass that you have to stay farther away from. So that's another little thing that comes into play a little bit more in small spaces than
0: others. And oftentimes when you're working on a property with small spaces, it's adjoining another property with a small space and not a lot of room between the houses. So you're having a jockey for position, but also maintain the setbacks and ensure that you're not creating some sort of problem next door. So there's a lot of considerations on these. And to the point in the beginning, really every inch matters just simply because of all these factors. And there's a lot more. There's a lot of things that
1: I think we should bring up about the access. If you've got two neighbors that are small next to each other, Mm -hmm. you may want to think about a lot of times people are like, well, you can certainly get a piece of equipment through there. My neighbor's really nice. And my neighbor's going to let you come on his property. And sometimes that works out without a problem. Mm -hmm. but And sometimes there's retaining walls between these two properties and the houses sit at different levels. So you can't really do that. So you can't really do that because you've got the elevation change between the two. The other thing is sometimes they're like, well, there's enough room on my yard and the retaining wall we can drive through here. So if you have a retaining wall and you're going through a small space and the retaining wall is holding... Up your yard, in other words, the next door neighbor's downhill. If you drive real close to that retaining wall, you could blow that wall out. Certainly compromise it. Yes. And so, from a safety standpoint, you don't want the excavator or bobcat to go rolling down the hill into the neighbor's house.
0: That's a great point. The
1: poolside perspective vocabulary lesson. Yes.
0: Yeah, so, here's another poolside vocabulary lesson word. And this word is variance. Variance. Vary, yeah, from time to
1: time. Right. A variance is the city's got some rules, but I don't like those rules. Mm-hmm. So I want to break your rules. So usually there is, you're allowed to break rules if you can come up with a proper reason on why this is creating a hardship for you. Mm-hmm. And so you can apply for a variance because of the hardship that the rules are creating. And you have to have some valid reason that you want to do this. Otherwise, I'd be like, if you just want to, that doesn't mean we're going to give you an exception to the rule. Now, when I apply for a variance, a lot of times what I'm going to do and what a lot of cities do is they communicate to all the neighbors that you're asking for this variance. And if you ask for the variance and the neighbors don't want you to do it, the chances of you getting it are practically non-existent. So... I had a pool a couple of years ago that we were proposing to put in the side yard because the side yard was actually bigger than the backyard. And I went to the city and the city said, oh, you're not allowed to put pools in the side yard. What are you talking about? Yeah, we had a problem with some people building the pools in the side yard and they made a lot of noise and it disturbed a lot of neighbors. And so we've changed the rule and, and you can't have a pool in the side yard. I was like, okay. So- this particular owner bought this piece of property, understanding that he could use it for that. And so I applied for a variance. And then I went to Google Earth and circled all the pools that they had already allowed to be built in the side yards and looked at where I could get the best picture with the most of them in there. And so I went in and said, Hey, this is what you used to allow. Now you won't allow it. So you're decreasing the homeowner's values of these homes, because you want to allow them to
0: improve them. You got the
1: variance, didn't you? I did get the variance. And the other thing that I did is I said, listen, you guys made this rule because you're trying to create an environment that's good for your neighbors. I understand that. But you reacted to one particular situation that wasn't a good situation, not understanding what's going on here. I said, you gentlemen and ladies will have to sit in variance meetings probably every month because you've created a situation now that people are going to do. So we're going to waste your time with this same request over and over and over again, which you used to allow. And now you don't because of this one situation. I said, if I was you, I'd consider retracting or modifying, which to just say, you can't build any pools in the side yards. Maybe it's a reduced situation or there's got to be some buffering or something like that. Anyway,
0: they changed the whole code. Because I agree, that sounded like they overreacted to a a certain situation. And to your point, even going to Google and, because I had this experience in McKinney last year, whereas these people had a pretty short of depth backyard and then it just immediately dropped down, was on a hillside. And they had pictures of all their neighbors that had pools in their backyards, but what they had in their backyard, which only a few houses in this neighborhood had, was they had a water easement irrigation, drainage easement in that yard, which negated them even the ability to add a swimming pool. And that would be something I would think that you'd want to know before you purchased a house. When it was all said and done, I felt pretty bad for them because they were never told this. And so now they bought a home that they can't put a pool in. You know, again, another reason to check out the cc and is to understand exactly what's going on in your property and to get us in sooner than later. Now, in this case, this house was already existing. That would be very frustrating if you really wanted to have a pool, but then you found out after you bought the property, you just can't have one.
1: Yeah, so a variance usually is you're going to ask for something that's reasonable. So if, and usually easements aren't, well, in my career, I've had modifications to easements three times in 30 years. Mm -hmm. So that's very hard to do. But so that's why it's real important to see what's on your survey when you first start. One of the things that also has come into play a lot of times, uh, I've had several easements regarding structures, variances on heights, because cities, a lot of them are restricting how tall it can be. And again, you usually have to show them what you're trying to do. And the, the most proactive thing is to reach out to all the neighborhood neighbors around and get their approval and then sign off. So instead of having, oh, we send it to the neighbors and we have one person that doesn't like it. If you show up to the variance meeting with, I've got 22 neighbors and nine of them have said they like it, it works fine, it's not a problem for them. Most of these cities are there and the officials that are overriding these meetings are there to make the neighbors happy. So if all of them are happy with what you're coming up with, then it's a lot easier for them to sign off on a variance too.
0: Well, and you bring up a really valid point. I think the cities are there to help if they can, but you've got to be able to make a good argument for it. Correct. It sounds like you've been successful at that. I've had a couple uh, variances in, in Phoenix. I haven't had to deal with one yet here, but it sounds like that's going to happen.
1: One thing also with cabanas that I've run into is their interest the cities are is that you won't turn this into a permanent. It's not a living structure. It's not a living structure. So I got one variance just by simply telling them we will not enclose this structure mm-hmm. we've got a back wall on it but the other sides will remain open we have no intent on enclosing it and they're like oh okay you're not going to make it another bedroom and it's no that's not the intent and they're like okay and they signed off on it.
0: well then it seems different if you're attached to the house or not because on most of those surveys they have a building setback for the house and if you add it to the house with the adjoining roof structure now it's part of Correct. the footprint of the house but if it's a separate structure Some cities, some HOAs have a little bit different perspective on it. So we're all about those perspectives here. Yes, we are. All right, good. I think that answers that question. I think we're good. Awesome. We do have a question of the day. I think the question of the day needs to be, can you crane equipment over the house or the walls And why or why not can you or can you not do this? And why is it a bad idea or a good idea? And what considerations are there? Craning equipment over the house certainly can be done. I mean, they
1: crane fiberglass pools over houses. If you want to crane a bobcat over your house, more power to you. But the whole thing is, you got the bobcat in the backyard, that's great. How are you getting the dirt out? Mm -hmm. So you got to have an access path to get things in and out. So one of the things that's done a lot is people will dig with what's called a mini, okay? Now, let me back up a second. You want the biggest piece of equipment to dig the hole for your pool, okay? The reason you want a big piece of equipment is because it can handle things in a speedy manner. Mm -hmm. It can handle more things than a small thing can. It can remove things easier, vegetation, dirt, all those different things. So you want as big as possible. But sometimes... All you can get is down a five foot side yard, and you got a little bobcat that's three and a half feet wide, and you're going to take it through that side yard to dig the pool. Okay. Challenge is you don't need one, you need two.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And the reason you need two is because one person's digging with the teaspoon wrapped around the human being. Right. And that's going, digging the hole. Now the other one's got to take the dirt back and forth to
0: the dump truck that's out at the street few buckets at a time. So it's very time consuming and labor intensive. And I tell people it's going
1: to take easy
0: twice as long. Mm -hmm. So
1: people are always like, why is this so expensive? You got to have two pieces of equipment and your dig time's easy twice as long. Or longer for sure. So it's a lot more time and equipment to make that happen. So it's not a good idea to crane anything over your house or your wall to get it into the backyard.
0: I just don't think you're going to really save any money. And the other thing, too, is the smaller the equipment that there is, it's pretty, pretty normal to have some sort of excavation issue with a hard dig. You're into rocks. Now you have a Tonka toy back there pecking away at these rocks, and it just takes forever. I had a project
1: a number of years ago, and you do some work out there at Possum Kingdom. Yes. Okay, so it's at Possum Kingdom, and there was a weight restriction on the road in this neighborhood. So you could only bring in so much weight. The project was under construction. My understanding is we were going to bring in the biggest machine possible to deal with this rock, which was some of the most dense rock that we've ever seen.
0: It's pretty dense out
1: there. And so the homeowner was talking to me and they're like, just not making that much progress. He's been at it two weeks. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, he's been at it two weeks. And I was like, are you talking about there's no way in the world with that big machine that he should have an issue and he's like oh they couldn't bring the big machine in and i said why not and he said because of the weight restriction on the road and i said why didn't anybody say anything about this so they're out there with the equivalent of what i call a ball peeing hammer mm-hmm. trying to peck away at granite and it's like ding 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 they'd hardly done anything okay so the homeowner. Said, so, is there a bigger machine? And I was like, Yes, there's definitely a bigger machine. I said, The issue, I guess I just found out there's a fine if you bring in a big Well we asked what the fine was. The fine was a thousand dollars. The homeowner's like, here's a thousand bucks. Okay. Let's bring in the biggest thing we can and get this whole done and over with. So the big guns. We brought the big thing in one time in and one time out, and the thousand dollars was to make sure that we didn't do damage to the road. And if we did do damage to the road to repair it. But yes, you always want the biggest thing possible to dig. That's my little machine story. The one of the things that's most important on these small lots is you got to be friends with your neighbor.
0: Probably need to be friends with your neighbor anyway. That would be a good philosophy to have. But if
1: you're going to build a swimming pool, it really helps to have a neighbor that will maybe allow you to borrow
0: part of their yard as access. Sure. Sure for at least the dig. We often have to do that even on regular pools because some of these homes are so close together. Correct. To Mike's point, being friends with your neighbor is great, but also bear in mind that as a pool company comes in, if they take down a fence that's adjoining two properties, yours and the neighbor's, literally yours and the neighbor's yard gets torn up. So that needs to be taken into consideration, especially from a financial standpoint, because that's going to cost something. Sure, You got to be
1: responsible. If you're going to go in your neighbor's yard and I try to paint a real clear picture, there will be a 10-foot path of utter destruction.
0: Yeah, you've said that before, and that's really a good way to put it because it is the reality.
1: Yeah, so the sprinklers are going to get damaged. The drains could be damaged. Irrigation system will need to be repaired and your neighbors. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have a kind neighbor that allows you to go through there, that's something you may want to do. Now, One thing also that comes up in those really tight accesses, there's an air conditioning unit. So I had a client today, I was explaining to them, for us to get in here, we're going to have to disconnect those two air conditioning units, remove them for the excavation, and then we'll put them back after we finish. And he said, well, I was a little nervous because it said, upon completion... And I said, yeah, that wasn't really clear. That's on a completion of dig. And he's like, whoa, that was good because I thought I was going to be without my air conditioner for the whole summer. Right. Which I thought I understood why he might have a question about that. I told him, well, you just stay in a hotel. And he's like, looked at me. And that was before I explained to him it was only for the dig. He was thinking I was telling me I had to move out of his house for the whole summer.
0: That seems to happen quite a bit here where we're having to disconnect AC units, move them out of the way, come back in and then actually replace them after the excavation is done. I, I find that interesting. I had to do it in Phoenix a couple of times, but it seems like it's more often here.
1: I don't know, but it does certainly come into play with the access on some of these projects that we have.
0: It's not only the AC units, but as we've talked about before, a gas meter could be sticking out. Oh, well, you know, definitely, there, there can be other things. And so even if you measure from the house to the fence, that's really not what the access is. The access is actually... The least amount of room that you have based off from the air conditioning unit to the wall. And that could be two feet. I mean, I've seen them here where, I mean, you you almost can't even get around. So I have a project that that we just finished. And literally, we had to dig the
1: pool prior to the house foundation being poured. Because when we were finished, the air conditioning units went in. And the only access into the backyard was through that side. And they literally mounted the air conditioning units on a platform six feet in the air. Wow. So you could walk into the backyard underneath the two AC units. So you better have those elevations spot on when you do that. So it was a really tricky backyard because it wasn't just about digging the pool. There was a eight foot elevation drop in this backyard. So they set the forms of the house and then we came in and dug the pool, and took it to Gunite, and then it sat there for months waiting for the house to be constructed around this little small space.
0: So did it go to Gunite prior to even pouring the foundation of the house? Yes. Oh, wow. Once we
1: dug, they started doing all the plumbing inside the foundation of the house, and we were Gunited before they finished the plumbing on the ha- and electrical before they
0: poured. Awfully smart of the homeowners or builder to get with you prior to commencing construction of the house. And that's what happens sometimes is we get brought in a little bit late and now it costs a whole lot more money.
1: They weren't happy because when they brought me in, they were ready to start the house. And Mm -hmm. I had to tell them, we can't start this house for three months because we got to get the drawings done, the engineering done, the permits done, and it's going to take roughly three months. So they had to wait on the house for three months before we started. But yes, it would have been impossible to build this pool I should rephrase that. And the worst access I've ever had Mm -hmm. for a small piece of property was on a townhome. Okay. And so this townhome, the only access into the backyard was through the house or through the garage. And in the garage, there was six steps from the garage floor up to the patio terrace. And then we went through a standard door into the space. With what? We hand dug it.
0: Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It must have been a hand dig. It was a hand dig. Oh boy. But
1: when you your access is huge and you're going through a thirty six inch opening, as it was in this case, you know, it all had everything had to be, be taken out with a wheelbarrow. Was and it buckets. a buckets?
0: Was it a pool or was it a spa? Oh, it or was it a
1: pool and spa combination.
0: Oh wow. You did that job that's in Westlake, the black one, that's it's a small project. We'll just talk yes. about that during this episode, but That had actually good access, but it was just a smaller space that you worked with. That thing was phenomenal.
1: Yeah, So we were lucky on that particular one and we had an empty lot, but the side yard was 10 feet wide. But yes, it was a very small space in between the house and the back of the property.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful project. I had one this last summer on a town, actually, I think it was a townhome or a condo, and they had a backyard, but there was no way to get into the backyard because both the adjoining neighbors' homes attached to that house. You couldn't get into the backyard unless you went through the house itself. But as it turned out, it had a courtyard. And what they decided was they wanted a built-in spa in the courtyard. But there were other challenges besides that. There was no place to put the pool equipment except for maybe in the garage. But even that wasn't a good alternative because now you're cutting up the floor. And most of these houses are in post-tension slabs. And as soon as you start digging and, and demoing and cutting concrete, you start jeopardizing, if not potentially creating a problem with the foundation. It's not something a builder wants to do, is dig into and demo foundations of homes. But ultimately, they decided not to do it, and they're just going to do an above-ground spa because there just wasn't a place to put anything. So I've
1: done two situations, one similar with the equipment in the garage. And if you do equipment in the garage, if there's a heater and it's a gas-fired heater, it has to be vented Mm -hmm. to the outside. And so I've done some projects where the pool equipment was inside, but the heater was outside. But we had one builder do a leave out in the foundation so we could actually bore underneath. And we actually sleeved the foundation, but there was a hole in the floor so we could take the piping through. The other situation is we went through the wall of the house, the wall of the garage.
0: You took the wall out of the garage? No, no, no.
1: We just bored holes, cord holes, and took the plumbing through it. And that's how we... it and built a box and manifold so we could insulate it anyway. so. So
0: you were able to get the equipment close enough so that when it tied into the pipes outside the wall, it's just right there. It was.
1: Yeah. But you have to be creative in small spaces and the equipment's a big deal. And a lot of these projects that I'm thinking about were done a number of years ago when our equipment pads were much tighter. And now with the energy efficiency and the plumbing and hydraulics that we're doing, our equipment sets are larger. And so that would become even more challenging. So it's really critical to understand when you're designing a space what kind of footprint is needed. And I have a lot of architects that draw a 3 by 6 or a 4 by 8 space, and that's not enough. A lot of times they're like, well, we dedicated this closet here to put the equipment in. And I'm like, it's not going to fit here.
0: I'm looking at one today that is for a pool being built indoors, and they've given us an equipment room that's about six by six.
1: That's wonderful. So one thing I had to do on one project when we had an indoor situation like that is we had to build a rack and put two levels of the equipment. So it wasn't a one level situation. So anyway.
0: I've noticed a lot of racks here too. I'm seeing equipment mounted on racks and it's cool. in a way it gets it off the ground. And then I've seen some crazy. In fact, I saw one today on one of the Facebook pages, and the pump was the only thing that was on a rack, and it was six feet above the pool equipment. And I was scratching my head trying to figure out why. That is interesting. It's the uh, only piece uh, of equipment that's on a rack, and it's six feet above the pool equipment.
1: Would it be a flood situation like in Florida, where you have a high water table? Or something? I have no earthly
0: idea. I'm just that's me neither. A, That's a wild stab, but
1: access is important. Where you put the equipment's important. What are some other things that you should think about if you're working in a small space?
0: I think that getting back to the whole access thing, to your point, we can hand dig some of these things. And certainly if it's just going to be a a spa and maybe you had enough room to have a perimeter overflow spa, maybe a small little area as the basin, if you will, and it was maybe only six or 12 inches deep, you could almost hand dig that stuff. But at some point you can't really hand dig. You know, based upon the size of the project, otherwise it just gets really expensive. So yeah, certainly the egress, the ingress into the area, the access into the yard, those are all super important. The variations in how close it is to the neighbors, those are all just a lot of considerations. But I think a big one's going to be the permeability of the lot itself and drainage, because this is another challenge we have, because in a lot of cases, the codes say you can only cover so much of the lot with so much hardscaping. Correct. So, one of the things we have to think about here in North Texas because it rains so much and we get such a variation of the weather is how do we get rid of all the water?
1: Yeah, this is especially a big deal in some of the areas where they've taken houses out that were built back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And, you know, it was a 2,500, 3,000 square foot house. And now they've come back in with a 10,000 foot house on the same lot. And so, what happens is we have a tremendously more amount of roof surface area that we're dealing with. The city's like, you can't just come in and pave everything because the water's got to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. We need some of it to go into the ground because our city systems aren't designed to handle all this water. And Mm -hmm. I just recently had a project that I went in and calculated it and they said, this is what we want to do. And I said, I'm looking at the calcs for your house. Your house has maxed your lot out. Mm Mm-hmm. So first assumption is we can't do anything here, creative sometimes. Yes, you are. So I looked at their existing porch that was done and I said, this porch isn't really very efficient. It doesn't flow with what you want to do. If I took off a corner of this porch here, I could then create enough square footage that would cover, because they don't count the water in the pool. So They count surface area and the shell of the pool and the pool equipment. And I said, with that amount, I can cover the pool equipment pad and the coping on the pool. But for deck, we can't use anything solid because it has to allow water to penetrate. And so we actually turfed the whole rest of the backyard. Which that can look really good. It looked spectacular. Mm -hmm. So what it does is bring in greenery into the space. But it works very well as a patio surface. People love it. Kids hang out on it. They lay on it just like they do regular grass. You don't typically do that with your pool deck. The other thing is it doesn't chop things up. We've got a landscape area and a deck area and a pool area. Basically, we've got a big green area and we've got the pool. So that was a solution. This was a very small yard that we were able to do and meet the permeability issues that they had on that particular piece of property. Every city is going to be different, so you need to understand if your city has an issue with that. And it's usually where the city's grown to a, a max capacity and then they're remodeling and adding on more. And the systems that they have only can handle so much, so you've got to figure out how to deal with the water somehow.
0: How far back since you've been here so long, do those surveys go where there was actually a permeability equation on them? Because back, I'm guessing, 40s and 50s, probably weren't even thinking about that stuff. Oh, did.
1: no, they weren't. Because like I said, the house that was there was much smaller and all's become an issue. The tear down and rebuild has been a big deal, I would say, here for the last 20 years. So before that, when you can still drive into some of those older areas. And it's happening more and more because people are looking at location and they're looking at a setting or a particular piece of real estate. And they're like, that was a nice house. We can tear it down and build a much bigger one on this piece of property.
0: So, and it'll be worth more than the old house with the new house on it. Yeah. And so because it's a new house, even though to some degree, I think sometimes they try to salvage one little thing on the old house so they could call it a remodel. At least they did that in Paradise Valley and in Phoenix all the time. Uh, One of my good friends is a custom builder there, and I know he did that, and they would just tear it down to the fireplace yes, and then rebuild the whole house. It was considered a remodel job, so they didn't have to pay some of the fees pertaining to getting a permit on a new home. Correct. So when I was in California, that was a popular thing. We had to keep
1: a wall. Okay. There was a lot of I was really curious when I first showed up. I was like, why did they tear everything down but that? And that was why. They had to leave one wall.
0: Well, and to your point, location, location, location. So it does make sense in a lot of cases to tear it down and build it back up. But what Mike's talking about earlier with the roof sizes and the home sizes is there's so much more water now coming off these roofs that has to be dealt with. It's got to drain somewhere. Otherwise going right. to cause future problems.
1: So the original systems designed with the drainage system for the town that so much is going to percolate and go into the grass. And now there's not any more grass in the backyard sometimes. And sometimes not much in the front either because people put in circular driveways and there's not a lot of landscape area, but it's your point. Drainage becomes a huge deal as well. And the fact that you want to take all that water that's coming off the roof and direct it somewhere So it doesn't create challenges inside the property
0: anywhere. And everybody's driven around and seen gutters that are full of water and they're all backed up. That's part of the problem is they're backed up, clogged up, or there's more water than that system can handle. And what we don't want on a swimming pool project is a bunch of standing water around it. I've said it before. I know you say this all the time, but the irony of a pool is that the water does the most damage to it, whether it's from the inside or the outside.
1: Some of these pieces of property, when you have drainage, some of them are on hillsides, and so that's not a problem. It's going to run off and be directed somewhere. But I've had in some cities also in recent that even though there's a drainage easement and the water is, the street's higher than the house, so the water can't go to the street. It's going into the drainage easement on the back of the property. They're worried about flooding downhill, and so they're actually making us retain water on the property and slowly release it so that's something too that could be an issue if drainage is an issue in a particular neighborhood but that's not necessarily because of it's a small lot that's just the city system can't handle enough
0: so you brought up a good point though that retention area because that's a big deal in phoenix there's communities and neighborhoods in phoenix where every lot has to retain all of the water that comes off that house and on that property somewhere That's eventually going to perk into the ground or go somewhere else, but it's a retention lot. Everything stays on that lot. Okay. So you don't drain from one property to the next. You drain into a retention area on your property.
1: Interesting. Because here in Texas, for the most part, if water went from one lot to the next originally, that's the way it's allowed to still go. And there's usually a drainage easement to allow that, that you wouldn't build anything into that so the water can flow properly.
0: I have found that on multiple new construction jobs where there is a swell going to the yard, goes through the neighbor's yard, goes into the next yard, circumvents the houses, goes around one way or the other. But that's a natural or a made up drainage easement, as you said, so that the water can get off these lots and you can't fill it up.
1: Yeah. You got to be careful if you're the guy at the bottom of the hill, because it's got to go somewhere. The slope in a small backyard sometimes can be tricky because I've had yards. When you build a pool, pools, the water has to pool. That's my bad joke.
0: The water has to pool?
1: Yes. In a pool? Yes. It's got to be flat. Otherwise they're called streams, not pools. Okay. Uh So you want a pool, you got to have a flat area. Well, if you have a little bit of slope in a backyard, It's not really noticeable until you put this pool and it's perfectly flat and the decking around it's perfectly flat, but the fences are sloping down the hill. Mm -hmm. And so when you go and stand out on your pool deck, sometimes you're ending up standing and looking over a six foot tall fence and it's like you're on stage with your neighbor. So there's not a lot of privacy issues there.
0: Privacy would be a big deal. Yeah. I think that to some degree, you know, especially a lot of the times it sounds like with that one client of yours, it didn't happen that way. You got in early. But if we don't get in until later on, we have what we have to work with. And things like shade and privacy, certainly they're all important on any job. But now you have to work with what's there. And sometimes people select lots that don't necessarily give them a lot of privacy. And I don't know that everybody thinks about this, especially I think if you haven't bought a lot of homes, you haven't built a lot of homes, there's just so much that goes into, especially if you're going to have a pool project into selecting a lot for just like the ultimate location and configuration in a yard. So with that, sometimes I will terrace the yard. So
1: they as the hill goes down, they sink down as well. You may come out and have some steps or things like that. But some yards, that adds cost when you put steps in. Both steps take up space. And so if you're trying to be as efficient as possible, you want to keep things all on one level so you don't have that loss of space with the steps. But you need to leave some space for some, maybe some screening plant material or something along those lines on the perimeter of the property. So on most small projects that I do, the backside of the pool won't have any paving on it because there'll be the setback. You have to be so many feet off the property and that allows me a layer of plant material. Then I can get some privacy between me and the neighbor depending on how tall the neighbor's windows are and how tall I can grow plants and things like that. So I have a client right now that privacy is a really big deal and we're actually going to go in and plant bamboo because it'll grow in a very narrow space and it'll grow very tall. But what we're putting the bamboo is in planters instead of in the ground because here a lot of bamboo spreads really bad. And so once you get it in the ground, it's like next to impossible to get rid of it. So you don't want the bamboo taking over the neighborhood. And it'll grow here. Yes. Really? Yeah, it grows very well. Now, the freeze that we had when the Great Texas Pool Massacre three years years ago, ago, the bamboo was severely frozen to the ground. But I can attest, because my neighbors have a lot of bamboo, it all came back quite well. So...
0: That's good to know. I bamboo makes a great privacy wall.
1: Yeah, in the right situation, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I've even gone as far as coming in and doing basically footing underneath the ground on the property line, and then outline the bed that the bamboo is going in with concrete, like just building a almost a retaining wall underground to contain the roots. To contain the roots, <laughs> That's so that a good idea. it'll stay where they want it versus. Again, taking over the whole neighborhood. My wife has a war in our backyard every year with the neighbor's bamboo coming over into our property. We can't do the wall situation because it would kill the trees if I came in and did a big concrete thing in there. So, anyway,
0: that's a great solution.
1: In the right situation, I think it's very effective. In there, certain parts of the country, there's things that grow very narrow and tall. You've got the Italian cypress, which will grow in a lot of different places. You've got certain shrubbery that can be pruned very narrow. And so just knowing what might be possible to create some form of privacy between you and the neighbor is extremely helpful.
0: We used a lot of ficus trees and bushes and hedges in Phoenix because we could almost sculpt those to a wall. Uh But my understanding is they don't do well here. I've not seen any out in the field as I've looked. In fact, I'm constantly taking pictures of some of the vegetation here and plants here, trying to figure out really what works great and what's best. And it seems like the hollies maybe would be something that would take place of the The, ficus trees.
1: The hollies do good in Texas until you have 108 degrees for about
0: three months, which we did this last summer. And a lot of the hollies died. That's the thing here. I mean, you've got such a diverse amount of vegetation that you can have. And I've been surprised at really what will grow here. And to some degree, some of the stuff that won't is like, why? But there's so much of a diversity in what you can plant. But then we have this weather, which is all over the map. Right. And that's an interesting dynamic to try to work that out for somebody and give them what they want. But hopefully... So they don't have a bunch of problems. And I should rephrase that with the hollies. Uh,
1: A lot of people that had certain varieties of hollies or newer planted ones, I know a lot of them that survived fine with the heat too, or got very peaked looking, but then the heat went away and they got better. But when you create a project, whether it's outdoor living, and sometimes we're going to come in with some screens, possibly. A lot of cities, like I've got a project that we recently did, And the city wouldn't allow a fence over six foot tall. However, you could build a screen off the property line, and that screen could be up to eight feet tall. That's it. I actually came in with a stucco wall that we did a built-in bench in and this type of thing. It just made a focal point, but they had a primary view looking out, and they wanted the neighbor's living room and dining room windows to disappear. They were peering right into their living room and dining room windows.
0: How far off the property line did you end up building that wall? I had to be five feet off the property line. So they had five feet behind it. What did you end up doing with that? Setting the pool equipment Uh,
1: there? No, actually, that's where the uh, Italian cypress go. So anyway, Mm -hmm. but it was just, sometimes you can be creative with the way rules are because Mm -hmm. the rules specify something. And if you're trying to screen something, the closer you screen that object to yourself, the more effective job it does screening. So if I try to screen something way over on your property line and it's eight feet tall, it might need to be 40 feet wide. But if I bring it in closer, maybe it only needs to be eight feet tall and 10 feet wide because it blocks that view from your sight line that you're working with. Good point. So it's just sometimes you just have to be creative. But I've also on the back of a lot of cabanas, we've built solid walls just for the simple reason to give privacy between them and the neighbor. And sometimes that's a masonry or sometimes it's wood. It can be a number of different things to just give you some screening and that may also protect you from the wind. There's a lot of different advantages from doing that with a,
0: a structure of some sort. Which brings up the shade issue, trying to get shade there. Again, we're depending on the orientation of the property, where it's at, and to the point on even the plants. I would imagine that when you're planning some of this stuff, taking into consideration the orientation so that they're not in the hot sun. 24-7. That's one of the things that happened in Phoenix all the time was the plants and everything outdoors just gets baked all day long.
1: Yeah, so what's on the east side of the house gets morning sun. What's on the south side of the house gets sun all the time. What's on the north side hardly ever gets sun, and the west side shade in the morning and fried in the afternoon. There are certain plants that thrive in all those settings. True. And what the challenge is, a lot of people are like, I keep trying this plant, and notoriously, you know, I'll be like, let plant grows in full sun. It needs to be in the sun. You're putting it on the north side of the house where it hardly ever sees any sun. Yeah, that plant's going to die.
0: Sure, and most south-facing backyards are going to get sun all day long. Oh, yeah.
1: Unless your neighbor's got a massive tree or something like that, so...
0: To your point, you go across the street and they have a north facing backyard. Now there's part of the yard that's going to get some sun, but the stuff up by the house isn't going to. So that's going to have to be a different variant of a plant.
1: Correct. So, so it's
0: not a one size fits everything.
1: Oh, definitely not when it comes to plants. Mm-hmm. So it's just Japanese maples are beautiful in Seattle, you know, in the full sun. But if you put a Japanese maple in, sacramento valley or dfw in the sun it'll fry so it's got to be on the north or the east side so it's got some shade or underneath an existing shade tree or something like that but yes your different plants are going to work differently with weather but
0: i wonder too if even like in those small spaces if you have too much vegetation around it that all needs irrigation so now you've got water continuously being dripped around the project itself And so I'm wondering if on some of those projects, it makes more sense to have them in pots. You know, obviously you can give them irrigation as well, but I'm thinking that might make some sense, especially in these very small spaces.
1: It certainly is something that you might want to consider. If you put pots in, I always try to set it up so those pots can have drainage and irrigation going to them. But pots a lot of times make a great solution. And the other thing is, You may not need a ton of plant material, but you need something to maybe to soften something up. And a pot sometimes is a good option to do that.
0: As well as the artificial turf, which I think is great.
1: Yeah. Now, so the other thing talking about artificial is in some of these small spaces, like the one that I talked about with the percolation issues, the permeability issue with the backyard where we turfed everything. The other thing the city required there is the city required a fence in between the pool area and the driveway because the driveway had an automatic gate. So there had to be a six-foot-tall fence there. And so what we ended up doing is put a fence there, and we put synthetic boxwood on the fence. And so now when you look out, it looks like it's a box, boxwood hedge. Sure. It's only taking up six inches. Yeah. So it's this very clean manicured finish look that looks like it's clipped all the time, but it's actually done in basically plastic boxwood.
0: I like the look of that stuff too. I'm curious what the longevity is of it and how well it's done in the weather here.
1: It's done extremely well. I've got several projects that are four or five years old and they look like the day they were installed. But the other thing that's happening is there's a lot more artificial plant material that's being done. And a lot of people install that, they call them green walls. Mm-hmm. And they'll come in and actually come in and do a whole wall with a decorative. It can be a pattern or it can be just, it's almost like a planting plan on the wall mm-hmm. and it's just done in synthetic material. And so you can create a lot of greenery and a small space where you would look out and normally think, I can't get anything into that space, but you can make it actually look extremely well.
0: Some of it looks really good. That's pretty low-maintenance synthetic. Yes,
1: it is an awesome alternative. But I've done quite a few projects, even where it wasn't required that we had a permeability issue, that instead of combining plants and deck, that we just simply put turf in small spaces. And it became more functional from a gathering standpoint, from a furniture standpoint, and still kept a lot of greenery in the space. Now, some people just want to break up the paving, and so they'll do the strips of turf as an accent or something like that. Anyway, turf is a really nice thing to use in small spaces because it allows you to maybe reduce the amount of plant material that's in there, but still give a very garden feel. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Getting back to your example of that boxwood material on a six foot fence, just so people understand, this sounds like a property that was already completely fenced in, but had an automatic gate to go into the driveway. And the reason that particular city required this is because if that gate was left open, now the pool area would be open to children. Correct. And open to people coming in. You've got to have that safety aspect. Correct. Taken
1: care of. The nice thing is the cars park out there. You don't even see the driveway of the cars. Nice. And so you look out and you've got this green lawn and a landscaped perimeter around the property for some privacy and you've got this nice pool and then there's a hedge on the other side. One thing also we did on that project, because again, space was a premium, is we wanted to put a table area in. And so when you have a table, you typically have chairs that pull back away from the table. And so when I say you do a table space, you need probably somewhere between 10 and 12 feet. Mm -hmm. So I can put the table, four chairs, pull back from the four chairs, and walk around that space. So that's a nice size space. That's 12 feet. So in this particular area, we had a smaller space. And so we did a built-in bench up against the wall of the garage and so they could slide the table all the way right up to that and so you still had to have from the edge of the table out four feet but you were able to reduce by about two and a half feet the space that was required so it made the flow of traffic better through this really tight space so built-in seating a lot of times i'm not a fan of a lot of people want to do it around a fire pit and i like movable chairs because it's different temperatures, different times of the seasons. But if you're looking at efficiency, built-in seating allows you to be a little bit more efficient with the space and it allows you to capture more function in a small area.
0: I would agree. I mean, We had to do this on a number of projects in Phoenix simply because some of the lots there, and I'm sure they're around here, it was 20 feet from the back of the house to the back wall, 20 whole feet. And then there was a patio there that stuck out. Eight was maybe eight or 10 by 16. And so from the patio out, it was 12 feet to the wall. And so you have to get really creative. But to the point earlier, I really like these small spaces because at a point now where I don't have children anymore that are coming to my house all the time and I'm not raising kids any longer. But just like the intimacy of that, just these small spaces and how comfortable they can be made. And you just want to be out there just because it's such a small area to maintain and take care of. Now. Speaking of intimacy, one thing you got to
1: realize is in a really small space, you got to be careful with sound. Because when you do a water feature in a small space, the sound bounces off of all these walls, especially if we don't have a lot of things to soften them. Absolutely. And so what may sound very minuscule in a normal backyard might be almost overpowering in a small space.
0: It's amplified.
1: Yes. I made that mistake very early in my career. We had a eight-foot-tall sound wall to block out the freeway noise, and then we had a two-story house, and I put a pool with a big waterfall in between.
0: So it blocked out the freeway noise, but also blocked out everything else.
1: The noise bounced in between that wall and the wall of the house. Uh-huh. And so the waterfall that I thought would sound really great did inside the house with the door shut. Oh, boy. So- When they went into the backyard, they couldn't have it on at all and talk. It was just so noisy. And there was a little trickle that came out of the spa. And that's what they used all the
0: time when they were in the backyard. That's a great consideration. Especially if you're in a block wall type situation as we are in Phoenix.
1: So you got to understand that you've got sounds going to travel differently in a small space. So one thing you may want to do is test out. Different things with a decibel reader, so you can actually find out what's a comfortable sound in that space. Anyway, that's something I'm playing around with on some videos right now. So I you can, have a decimal meter? Yes, of course was, you do. It was cheap. I was amazed on. It wasn't that expensive, but yes, I'm very analytical. <laughs> to I love point.
0: it. I have one of those little guns that you can test the temperature of the water. I thought that was cool. Yeah, we
1: test. Water feature sounds mm. so we can get an idea. So we don't use something that's
0: overpowering because well, I have messed that up. And the point is that it's just yet something else to consider. It's a great consideration. I forgot to mention
1: when we were talking about privacy mm-hmm. and we were talking about a slope in a yard. So a lot of these projects. What we end up doing is to try to make it as efficient as possible, not have steps, is we'll actually come on the outside of the property and build a retaining wall and level the yard that way. So a lot of these lots are rear-entry lots. You have an alley in the back. The driveway comes into the garage, and you've got this little space in between you and the neighbor. But they slope it so there's good drainage out of that space going back to the alley but when you build a pool, you're sitting there looking over the fence. So the code, at least in this one particular city, was from the ground to the top of the fence. So I built a four foot tall wall and then I was able to build an eight foot tall fence on top of it, okay? So they their privacy. So they have their privacy. From the outside, it's 12 feet tall. And normally they would only allow an eight foot tall fence, but because you're on top of the retaining wall, they didn't count that. So you got even more privacy between you and the neighbors and you have a flat lot. And you didn't have steps incorporated.
0: That's a great idea.
1: So it's just something that sometimes can be done to make the space more efficient. Because again, as I said, if you had a four foot drop and you were trying to put steps in, that's eight feet of steps at a six inch riser. You just lost eight feet in the backyard. Sure. Sometimes that's that'd be a critical situation so
0: it's one of the reasons why and i'm sure you're the same way i just am compelled to go to every single job site i want to see the lot i want to see the views i want to notice everything and you can't do that you get a topo i mean yeah that's okay that's nice i understand the topography of that lot but it still doesn't really give you all the views well your senses aren't being used there you have to me, what's critical,
1: with especially with privacy, is what are the neighbor's views? Mm-hmm. What does that house look like? How high are the windows up? Where's the key views from? Is that a, a living room area or is that just windows from the living room that's you know giving light in from the second floor? There's actually not living space up there. So it's just when you're in the space, it gives you a better feeling for what's going to happen. Now, I went into one yard not too long ago and this guy sat there and listed all the things. He said, I want a cabana, an outdoor kitchen, and I want a dining room area, and I want a place the kids can play, and I want a fire pit, and what else did he want? He wanted something else. Oh, he wanted a, a sitting area so he could sit and watch flat screen TV. So I said, it's like, this sounds like a great space. No pool. Still a great space. There was 15 feet from his house to the property line. This was a zero-lot line house. So his whole yard was the side yard and the distance of the depth of the lot. And I was like, code wise, you know, not have a prayer because the city's going to require you to be a certain distance with this structure, certain distance with the fire. There's no way that you're going to be able to do this. So I said, but let me check. I've dealt with the city of Fort Worth before, but I'm sure this will not work. Well, I called and Because this particular subdivision knew that they were going to have issues, smart developer, when they developed the neighborhood, they asked for variances for everybody in that neighborhood. So they had different setbacks in the city than anywhere else in the city. That was smart of that developer. Smart of the developer. Instead, I think the structure had to be three feet off the property line. And anyway, so I was able to get everything that he wanted in this space which we'll tag, this will be one of the pictures. We're going to show pictures of a lot of these jobs of what went in. Now, the one that I had to stop and scratch my head on a little bit was the fire because the fire has to be a certain distance from anything flammable. And basically, there was no way to get a fire pit in anywhere. Yeah, it's typically 10 feet. Yeah. So he got a solo stove. And a solo stove is a really cool fire pit that burns, and I was amazed on how well that it burned most fire pits, you're going to get a lot of smoke and it's hard to sit around them. But the way this is designed, it puts the smoke up and it burns hotter. I don't know how it works, but the smoke basically starts about six feet up. So when you're standing around it, you're not having a smoke issue.
0: that was a solo stove.
1: Yeah, S-O-L-O, which was interesting. I didn't realize one of their main distribution places is right around the corner from the office in the United States. But Anyway, because it's a portable fire pit, Mm -hmm. there's no code. There we go. Okay. Now, is
0: this wood burning?
1: It is wood burning. Okay, gotcha. That was how we came up with the solution. I came up with that he could use something portable. He found something really cool that was portable. And there's a lot of different things that are on the market that have a small gas tank underneath it. They have fire tables and you can sit around and so you can get the sense of a fire feature or warmth or cook your s'mores or all the above. Anyway, if it's not a permanent structure, there's not a permit required on it or a setback required on it. Sure. Yep. That's a good point. So you got to check with your city about the particular codes that you have. And even in a city, a lot of times there's different codes for different neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. There's different codes for alley access lots. There's different codes for corner lots. So what I suggest is when you're dealing with this is call up and give your exact address and ask what restrictions that there are on that piece of property. You're talking about call the city? Call the city. Right. So you can find out, because a lot of people like, my son-in-law is trying to do something right now. And he said, it doesn't say that there's anything on the plan here. And I said, it shows a front setback and a side setback. I said, you have a rear setback. They just didn't put it on the drawing. Okay. Because he's thinking he can build. Structure in the backyard and be three or four feet off the property line. And I'm like, nah, I don't think you got a prayer to do that. But go call the city and they'll tell you exactly what you have.
0: Well, and the other place you get some of that information or additional information is in your Rs, in your HOA paperwork. That's going to tell us. And I'm asking people to send that to me so I can at least scan through it and look and see if there's anything. But yeah, most of these cities have pretty consistent rules and codes, but they're different depending on the city, it's really important to know the exact address. And if you're in a neighborhood that has an HOA, which is probably going to be nearly every new neighborhood, we'll need a copy of the CCNRs.
1: Yes, because occasionally the homeowners association rules are more restrictive than the city rules. That's true. And so you need to be aware if that is the case, like in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there's two subdivisions that I'm aware of that have stricter rules than their cities do. And you have to know what those are because the one city won't even allow you to submit for a city permit until you've been approved by the HOA. Yeah, it's usually the other way around, but that's how they work anyway.
0: Mike, I have a question for you. What is, in your mind, and, and some of this might be obvious, but what are some of the benefits of working with a small space? And then what do you think are some of the drawbacks other than what we talked about? So. I think one of the benefits is you can have
1: a lot of impact with a feature or something in a smaller area that doesn't have as much impact in a big space. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the small spaces that I've done really cool features because as they look out of their house, the view that they have is of this space. And so they see it from everywhere. And so finishing up a project right now that we're finishing up the design aspect of it. And we're doing a really cool water wall. You can see it from the master bedroom. You can see it from the living room. You can see it from the family room. You can see it from the kitchen. You can see it from everywhere. We're doing some really cool stuff with it. It's got some length to it. So that's something that's fun that you can do in a small space as your impacts are greater. Now, the one thing that's probably disadvantage is your costs are usually much higher per square foot than they are in a larger project.
0: Right. So it's pretty normal for a homeowner to think, well, it's really a small space, so it's not going to cost as much. We have some other things to consider.
1: Yeah. So as a whole, there's two types of projects I deal with a lot. One is I do a lot of small spaces and people a lot of times are like, that's more than my first house. And that's what's going to cost me to do something in this little bitty backyard. And mm. I'm like, well, yes, because it's a lot more complex to build in this space. And I've got a lot more challenges to build in this space. And we're doing all these cool elements in this little bitty space. And you want everything that I put in a big project in this small space as well. So the costs go up, even though it's a small space. But a lot of times people almost look at it as more of a room then they do a backyard. sure. Okay, so they're looking at all kinds of little details so it finishes out really cool. So we're getting into rugs on the floor and artwork on the walls and everything like you would in a room in a house where you get a big project, you don't go into that kind of detail.
0: So a couple things that come up based upon what you just said would be, we've talked about before about bringing the outside in and the inside out. And when you're dealing with a small space, I would think more often than not, because you're so enclosed, we're trying to expand the living space of the house because oftentimes these houses aren't that big either. Right. People are trying to come up with creative ways to have more space to live in and to enjoy. And so the views from inside the house make all the sense in the world to understand because I think that you want to be able to enjoy it even when all the windows and the doors are closed. The other thing would have to do with the fact that from a cost perspective, one of the things we talked about previously had to do with ramadas. And people are oftentimes or arbors or cabanas. They're surprised at how much those cost. But in those cases, we're bringing everything in that they have in the house. We're bringing plumbing, we're bringing drainage, sewage, hot water heaters, everything else. So it's literally like another room. And I think that's what you're trying to allude to is we have the small space, but we're packing a lot of stuff in there.
1: Oh, yeah. So when we pack all this stuff in there, what becomes critical is to understand how many people are going to use this space. So when I design a spa in a big yard, it's six or eight or ten; it doesn't matter much. But if it's in a small yard, I really need to get a wrap around. Do I need to design this for four or for six? So I don't want to design it for eight because that's going to add eighteen inches by eleven feet, and I may need that for something else. Okay. If I'm going to sit down at the table, how many people are really going to sit at this table? Is it four? Is it six? Is it eight? So I want to know the number because the best way to design the small space is I got to put the key elements that you have to have in first. Okay. Got to drop the big rocks in first into this space. Mm -hmm. And then I can fill in with the other things. We talked with Kurt. I was just thinking about that. And one of the key things that he says is you got to come in and put the plant material in. Mm -hmm. You got to look at the plants to make sure you have enough room for those. And then you got to come in with your key elements. And then with what's left is you come in with the pool. Now, I want the pool to be as big as I can and still give them their features that they need. Okay. I need the patio space. I need the screening for the plants and things like but But then I want the pool as big as possible because that pool makes the space feel bigger. Sure. Okay, it's reflective. Okay, so if you can get as much water as possible in there, this is a key with Japanese gardens, okay, I want a lot of water, okay, because it gave a feeling of more space in the backyard. But you can't do it the other way around. If you put the water in first and then try to fill the big chunks in, it usually doesn't mathematically work. So another thing that's really important to understand is how you're going to use this pool. Okay. If you're putting a pool in, okay. Or if it's a cabana, how are you going to use this cabana? I need to understand exactly how you're going to use it so I can come up with the most efficient use of space.
0: So that project you were talking about earlier that you added the cabana was only 15 feet wide. Yes. Did you end up, Connecting the cabana to the house?
1: The cabana was connected to the house, and that was one of the things that typically you can't have a structure because there's a building set back, mm-hmm. and if it's connected, it's considered part of the building, and they had some variance with that allowed it. So, the posts for this thing were three feet off the property. So, you
0: ended up with a 12 by 12 or 12 by whatever. Oh, we
1: did a 12 by, I want to say it was 20. So, deep. Okay. So, there was a kitchen area in there and an area for their couch and then the flat screen TV. And then in the corner of it was a screen that went around the AC unit. Because again, we're squeezing everything in. So, we've got to put a screen around it so we can buffer it from a visual standpoint. But right. we made that efficient too. But- Yes, it was a tight space.
0: Great. What else you got to add to this? Oh, lots of fun
1: things. When you have elevation changes in a small space, you really have to think through that to make sure that you can, again, deal with the elevation. The one that typically messes people up is where there's a cross elevation, where it slopes from one side of the yard to the other side, and not from the house to the back, but side to side. So- Math can be real tricky on how you layer these things in there to make all the stuff work because the drainage still has to work and you got to make everything work. But sometimes in small yards that I've run into where the developers come in and built a retaining wall on the property. And so he's trying to level these lots out as much as possible. And sometimes that retaining wall between them and the neighbor might be 10 feet tall. The challenge is when you go to build a structure in there, that's in Texas versus California. I don't know about other parts of the country, but in Texas, you don't have to certify that backfill. It doesn't have to be a certain compaction rate. In California, it was required that it be brought to 95% compaction rate.
0: So you might be dealing with fill that's not even appropriate to even build anything. Correct. So
1: it is not uncommon. They'll deal with the house. And they'll come in and compact that area, but then behind that, they won't. And so when you come in to do a pool, you may be digging down six feet, but you still have four feet of fill to deal with.
0: I'm dealing with that on a big project out at Lake Ray Hubbard.
1: The thing that you have to understand is, A, do you have a soils report? Mm -hmm. And that becomes real critical when you have a wall like that. Or you just have to understand, here's what's going to happen. We're going to dig this project. But until we dig, we may not know if we hit original grade. If we don't hit original grade, we're going to have to do some type of pier structure, or remove all the fill dirt and come back in with a compacted fill, or we use a lot of road base here. You want to have make sure that you have a small space, and you know, out of elevation change that it has been properly prepared to come in and do something in Texas. And clients just assume it is sure that
0: it is not. And why is this important? Well, it's important because if that ground is not compacted properly, then whatever we build is going to settle and you're going to have a problem. And we're not going to build that way.
1: You don't want your pool rolling into your neighbor's yard. That wouldn't be a good idea. No, or your cabana or anything else. It's something really, now one thing that you can look at to help you understand those things is you look around for trees, trees that may originally may have been on The ground before they did the grade work. And so you can establish how much they've changed because they may have cut into the hillside. And so it may not be 10 feet of fill. It may be three feet of fill. And then they did three feet of cut. But Mm -hmm. unless you have something to understand what that is, or if the builder can provide some form of documentation, which I've never seen anything like that. But again, I haven't worked all over the country and I'm sure that different parts of the country are going to handle this differently. But An existing no. tree may give you a point of reference of indication what, you know, like I had one project. It was on a golf course. It was a 10 foot drop to the trees right behind his retaining wall. So he had 10 foot of fill brought in and it was a narrow space and he wanted a pool and a cabana. And so I told him this is what it's going to be and this is how it's going to be built. We're going to have to come in and do piers under both structures, blah, blah. blah. Next door neighbor, his wall was only six feet tall to the existing grade. And then part of it went over to like four feet tall. And so on that particular project, we we're able to take the pool down and then remove some of the fill underneath that and come in with a sub-base. And so we had no piers under his cabana or his pool, but they were both sitting on original grade. I just had to do special preparation.
0: So bottom line is that that's a project by project decision that's made. I had a project in Prosper last year where they had a 10-foot retaining wall on their backside, and they wanted to push that pool right up near that retaining wall, you look at that angle of repose, now this thing's pushing on the wall. And you can't compromise the wall. The only option there really was piers. Right. But they found somebody, I think, that wasn't going to do piers. That's why you say the money you saved for the remodel that you have to do later on. You know, another thing I thought about, because and what cued me on this was when you're talking about sound in a small space, I would think lighting in a small space would be yet something else, because what would seem like... Not that much lighting on a big open area. I mean, you might be just under a microscope, you know, and have that whole place lit up with the similar lighting. So lighting, I think, would be yet something else to consider.
1: Something that you want to think about and how you're going to do that.
0: Well, and the cool thing is, like we talked about with dark pools, I mean, if you put the lighting in the right way and the landscape in the right way, at night, that could just be a mirror and it would just be reflecting off everything. That looks fantastic as well.
1: Most definitely. Other lighting... Other than the pool, I mean, I've got a lot of projects that we've come in and lit it up similar to a room again. So we'll come in with lights. String lights, I think, are a favorite of a lot of people to create a kind of a festive space. Edison lights? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I call them string lights. That's Edison lights, probably a more adequate.
0: That's just what I always heard them call, but they definitely are string lights.
1: Yeah. But uh, I'm trying to think of something else. Stop and breathe.
0: Mike, you were talking about a really interesting project earlier, and it had to do with connecting an arbor to a house, but we were just talking a minute ago about something really unique that you did on a house that was L-shaped. And so you had a space between the two sides of the house, and you did something really creative.
1: Yeah, so the issue, again, in a small space is you want to keep it as open as possible. You don't want to clutter it up with a lot of different structures. And shade was critical in this, and it was a U-shaped house there was a living room and then there was the master bedroom on one wing. And then I think there was a game room on the other wing. And so what I ended up doing is most arbors are going to be supported by posts and everything like that. And so on this one, what we did is we tore the brick off the house where the beams could then attach to the structure of the home. And so there was a Bracket put in that was attached to the structure of the home, and that bracket then attached to the beam. And then we lowered, we had to come in and, because the beams literally went from wall to wall. We had to lower it in and clear the gutter, and so it could drop into the other space. And then we came in and rebricked around them so they looked like this beam was built with the home, Mm -hmm. and we did that on both ends, and then we connected it with the joists across, and so now we have an arbor that's covering the
0: space, but there's no posts. Was this a wooden arbor? It was a wooden arbor. So probably cedar here, and then with the slats. Correct. I bet you that looked really good. It looked like it was built with the home,
1: Mm -hmm. and so most people, in fact, I had to meet the plans examiner out on the site because he's like, I don't get how you're doing this. What do you mean there's no posts? Because he's like, where are the posts on this job? And I said, it's attached to the, anyway. So I met him out there and he was like, that's brilliant. That's a great solution. So it was really fun. And it was a small space. And again, you want to minimize how much stuff you have in a small space to make it seem as large as possible.
0: Do you, you remember how much, how long that span was? It was like 18 feet okay, I was going to say like 18, 20 feet, because you could yeah. span that.
1: Yeah. So you can, typical beam max that you can get a standard beams, 20 feet. I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, this was like 18.
0: Because I used to build houses, there's a king's section up top where the roof trusses sit on. Did you end up having to take out part of the brick as well to put some more support in underneath there? Or was the loading just not enough that the wall could handle that load?
1: It was enough with the bracket that we were using to handle the load.
0: That bracket spread the load out too. Correct. Gotcha. Another thing that you've talked about a lot in the past, which I think is such a great idea, has to do with borrowing landscape from another property to help augment what it is that you're doing in somebody's yard. So explain to our listeners what that's all about, especially in these small ones.
1: Yeah. So in a small space, again, you want to leave space for the landscaping on the side, but so many times the neighbor wants to do the same exact thing. They don't want to see you. I know some people think everybody wants to see them, but they don't want to see you either. And so they've already come in in a lot of cases, and put things in to create privacy. Mm -hmm. And so what you then have to do is play off what they didn't do sure, and fill in the gaps. And use what they did do. And use what they did do. And then if you can come in with a simple vine on the fence or something like that, you've got the screening provided by them, but now you have just a limited green backdrop with something very thin. Now you've got a, a lush setting for a backdrop, that didn't necessarily take up a lot of space, or it might just take up a key thing here and there. Like I've got a project going right now that the key view is their master bedroom lines exactly with another client's master bedroom across the way. And so I've got two trees that I'm putting in in the design to block that view. But the neighbor has already come in with a hedge everywhere else to block everything else out, but the master bedroom was the key issue. So we're gonna borrow his hedge been augmented with our trees, and so now we've got a privacy. So now you just fill in the space so you can keep as much usable space in your backyard
0: instead of just filling it up with plants,
1: even though I I do love the green and growies.
0: Sure, and there's just so many things to consider, and we were talking a little bit too about zero lot lines and how your property actually butts up to the neighbor's property and house even. And you were talking about a water wall at one point, where the depth of the basin wasn't very deep, and so you were able to get away with adding some sort of water wall literally right on the property line or close to
1: it. again, so this was a zero lot line. They had different rules than a typical subdivision, so I was able to build an eight-foot-tall water wall literally as the fence, and then I was able to then talk the city into... It went in down into a catch basin that was only six inches deep, and then it ran over to the edge of the spa, which was on the normal setbacks from the property line. With the runnel? Well, it just was basically a, a six-inch basin. And then there were, I had a spillway that went out of that oh, connection, down into right. the spa. You know, this water wall fell down and it ran into the spa. The spa was the proper distances off the property. And then I just said, this is just a fence. It just happens to have some water running down the face of it. And so I've got this six-inch thing here and there. Okay. We can work with that. Sometimes you have to walk in and walk through a plans examiner, what you're trying to do. And if you're doing something that's reasonable, a lot of times they'll work with you.
0: The reason I asked that was because it's a body of water. So we're sharing that body of water with the spa. So it's getting filtered. It's getting sanitized, that sort of thing.
1: Yes. It was on a total, it's sanitized. Yes.
0: Got it. Certainly. All right. We're going to have a word of the day too for this episode. And I'd like for this word to be CCNRs. CCNRs. Codes, covenants, and regulations. Or
1: restrictions, yeah. Restrictions. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure you have a few stories that you'd like to tell about what CCNRs are.
0: Oftentimes, it can be a little daunting to look at these CCNRs. And if you're in a neighborhood with an HOA, you're going to have them. But I've seen these being two and 300 pages long. And they just cover everything. And so it becomes a little daunting for a homeowner to even find the stuff in it. So I'm usually requesting it anyway, because I want to know. But yeah, to your point earlier, and right. in another episode, you just don't know until you know. And some of these CCNRs are more restrictive than even the city codes are. Right. But even like with the city, you can get a variance. And sometimes with the CCNRs, if you go in, you explain it to them. Sometimes you can get, get something passed through, but it just depends on what it is. We need to know what it is.
1: Yeah, when I bought my first house here in Texas, I was signing the loan docs, and they went, "Oh, and you need to sign this here." I'm like, "What's this?" They said, "But you agree to all the CCNRs of this subdivision." And I was like, "I haven't seen them." And they're like, "Oh, you to see them?" And I was like, "Yes, can I read the CCNRs?" Right. And they brought out. It looked like a telephone book, but most people don't know what a telephone book looks like anymore. This was a big, thick book. It was several hundreds of pages long, and yes. I was like, I don't know if I agree to these. And they're like, well, if you're going to buy the house, you have to agree to them right now. So we signed off on it. Yes, someday I'll tell you some stories about adventures with the HOA, and their CCNRs that I come to find out as we went.
0: Well, there's definitely things to consider with that.
1: We want to follow the rules. Okay. But we have to know what the rules are to begin with. And sometimes the rules are very normal. It's nothing surprising of what's in those They're just very rational points that make everything, people live together and be more happy with each other because they're all in agreement with it. But some CCNRs have some crazy stuff in them.
0: They do. And I think that they can be good because they're trying to protect people's investments and not just yours, but everybody else's.
1: Most definitely.
0: And there's some of them that, that can also just be frustrating depending on your lifestyle and what you have. But absolutely, that's something that we really need to have if you're building a new home is a copy of those CCNRs as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, so we don't have any surprises, especially if we're building in a new area mm. or if it's a new subdivision that's gone in. We may not know what those codes and
0: regulations are. So They would definitely have them. Okay, great. Awesome. I have another question here that we got in from somebody, Mike, that we can use. What is a bobcat shuttle? So a bobcat shuttle is where you get the cat
1: and you do a
0: dance. No, no, another bad joke. That was funny because it took me a second to... Figure out that you were making a joke.
1: Yeah, okay. So a bobcat is a piece of machinery that is a small tractor. It could be called a small tractor shuttle, but... Or skid steer is
0: another name for them.
1: Yes. So what we're going to do is instead of driving a dump truck into your backyard and load it with an excavator, we're going to get dirt out in some other formal manner. So what we typically, what I look at when I'm trying to do access is can I back a dump truck into the space and can I then get the dump truck back out of the space Mm -hmm. okay in some cases I've got to turn around or can I back all the way in and back all the way out and then if I have to back around a corner sure is there enough distance for them to turn in the front of their truck not knock the fence over for the neighbor and so there's all these things there are trees that I'm trying to back around and all these things. And sometimes the obstacle course is too overwhelming for the truck driver, or sometimes the side yard is too steep for the truck driver to back in because there's too much of an angle between the house and the property line. And so when I first started, I questioned this occasionally and I was tossed the keys to the dump truck and they're like, you take it in there. And I'm like, Oh, oh no. <laughs> and they're like, okay. Okay then this is not a dump truck situation. And any time that you want to question it, we'll give you the keys and you can try to make it work. And so I've learned over the years that there's certain things that it's going to be difficult to go around. So the better option is to leave the dump truck on the street. Leave the dump truck on the street and drive the Bobcat back and forth. And there's a couple other reasons to do it too, not just the width that we're going through or the angle that we're going through or the Turning ratio that we're going through. Those are all important. But what am I going to drive over? Like a driveway. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people in the industry that are like, oh, yeah, you can drive a dump truck over a driveway. And that is a correct statement if the dump truck's empty, Mm -hmm. which it is half the time. Okay. But the other half of the time, it's coming out fully loaded. And the chances of it cracking your drive are at least 50%. And so to me, that's not really great odds. But if you want to gamble with it, and not pay for a shuttle and pay for a driveway instead. That's your prerogative, mm. okay? But I'm generally not going to take it. Now, the other thing that comes into play here is asphalt. Got an asphalt driveway.
0: Now it's the middle of summer and it's 110 out.
1: Oh, yeah. And that asphalt is soft. Yes, it is. You want me to drive up your driveway because you got a ranch. And you want me to drive up your driveway that's a quarter of a mile long that's asphalt and with my dump truck. And my answer is no, that's not going to happen because I will tear your asphalt drive all up. So what then has to happen a lot of times is they're like, how are you going to get in here? And I'm like, you got all kinds of land here. Can I get in some of the cows and the horses, shuttle these things around so I can get at least two days in and two days out so I don't come up here. Now, I did have a case not too long ago. It was a 450 foot asphalt drive. Mm. And they said you can't take the fences down. I'm like, okay. So we shuttled a bobcat all the way, 450 feet. Now, what that does is, I think that tripled the dig time on the pool because basically we're running back and forth with a little bitty teaspoon to fill up the sand pail a hundred yards away. It takes a long time to do that. So you just got to know when you want to use a shuttle and when you don't want to use a shuttle and the pros and the cons of it. So any other thoughts?
0: No, I think you made a valid point in the sense that you could have 10 feet of access, but it just doesn't make any sense to risk destroying stuff. We all know that the access into the yard is gonna be torn up, coming across driveways or even city sidewalks. There's a lot of stuff we've gotta be very protective of, and that's certainly one of them.
1: To take a dump truck up your driveway, I guarantee that I'll crack it and I'll crack your sidewalk as well. I've worked on projects. I just finished one. We just finished it a couple weeks ago, and it's all done. The driveway was cracked to pieces already. Mm -hmm. And he's like, drive over it all you want. We're going to tear it out and put a new one in it. Just be aware and communicate what you're getting into
0: so nobody's getting surprised. Excellent. I think that answers that question.
1: Kevin, appreciate all the time. I appreciate all the listeners. Thank you for listening to us. If we can answer any of those questions for you, please go to social media, go to the website, request those questions, and we'll get you some answers to help you with your particular problems. And hopefully we can come up with some solutions for you. Also, if you get a chance and you really love the podcast, if you can give us a ranking on Apple, no, that's a review, not a ranking. Anyway, if you could help us out in that, it will help spread the word, especially come spring, so more people can find out this and hopefully create their oasis in the backyard. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. So have a good
0: one, Kevin. Bye. This show is all about helping you become a better buyer, a better pool owner, and hopefully you're going to find some insights into how to enjoy your pool even more so, how to help your friends, your family, anybody looking to buy a pool in the future or that want to remodel their backyard, add an outdoor fireplace, fire pit, add an outdoor kitchen area, add some shade cells or whatever else it is. We want to be that resource for you, and that's the end goal here. And we promise that there's going to be a ton of information, information we'll try to go through it you know as relatively quickly but also slow so people can understand but the intent of the show the reason mike and i are doing this is because we just got a lot in our heads and we want to share it so we hope to see you here every single week thanks for listening